Welcome to Unbooking the Tank, Atari, the bonus series from Unbooking the Territory, where we look at the ups and downs of the in-ring career of Tank Abbott. This week, Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner face Chronic. I'm going to give you the chance of a lifetime there, Doug Dillinger. I'll let you come out here and take a shot on me. Wait till he finds out what's behind door number one. Something down the road at the Silverdome in Sinks playing to an empty house. Because the real deal is here. Oh, here he comes. Get that fat duck ass out here. I'll tell you something, Mike. He's not done yet. This man, Tank Abbott, is making a name for himself. So how are you this week, Dan? I'm doing very well, mate. Doing very well, despite the third-degree burns in my mouth from wolfing down a, uh, a piping hot toad in the hole. I'm very good, and I'm very excited to talk some more tank. How are you, pal? I'm all right. I, I've come down from the disappointment of the weekend. You know, it's a long, long way to go down and be cheated out of two penalties, but it probably wouldn't have changed anything anyway. And Forrest wanted it more. Yeah, it's it's an hard, it's hard to take a loss at when, especially when you get that far. But regardless of uh, of the result, town had sort of massively overachieved just getting there. So although the results crap, it's hopefully still a, hopefully still a good day out. Yeah, I, I mean, in all fairness, Luton and Forest probably overachieved as well getting into the playoffs. You know, Forest at one stage of the season were bottom of the league, I think after eight games or something. So. Massive turnaround mm. from them. You know, Luton, much the same as ourselves, have done, done it with uh, low spending. So, yeah, it was really good that it wasn't just, you know, the big boys who spent loads of money in there. And um, obviously we saw the consequences Derby County had to face for being one of the big spenders. So, you know, it's... Uh... It, it is going to be good seeing Forrest back in the Premier League again because, you know, when I was a kid, they were, they were there or thereabouts and it's been 20 years and all the rest of it, so... There is, a, there is a good story attached to it, but um, to be honest, mate, you can probably blame uh, me and uh, me and Lee Conley because we were watching that in uh, in Sheffield Brewery on his phone, so I can't help but feel that we jinxed it for you. Oh, I, I know Lee was looking for uh, a, a short away trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, to be fair, I mean, he's quite close, Rotherham to um, Notts Forest anyway. It's not, that's not the worst trip in the world, so yeah, probably want too much in it. Nevertheless, it's, yeah, it's tough to take, but there's always next season. There is. There is. Onwards and upwards, although I'll take off my table at this point. <laughs> so are you drinking this week, Dan? Of course I am, mate, and I've had a little visit from uh, from Tartarus. I'm on their, uh, their Inari, which is Japanese rice lager, at 4.1%, so on the lower end for, for Tartarus. But I must say, as rice lagers go, it's bloody lovely. Oh, fantastic. I'm just at the moment finishing off uh, Quash by Kirkstall Brewery, uh, which is uh, a blood orange uh, beer. But there used to be a, a squash called Quash in the 80s. You're probably too young to remember it. Had aliens on, on the advert. And it, it tastes just like that. So I'm, I'm very happy that they've brought back that back in boozy form. But up next after that, I do have a Tartarus beer. Uh, I've got Ogun, uh, which is a 9.5% stout from uh, Tartarus beer, uh, beers. I'm really looking forward to drinking that. So if you want to drink Tartarus beers, uh, log on to tartarusbeers.co.uk, put in the promo code UTTPODCAST15, and you can have a visit from the Tartarus fairies and get 15% off. Yeah, it's always a good time, and I may just have one of those Ogun Stouts in uh, in my fridge as well for, for later on. Oh, superb. 
So the match we're going to review today is from Thunder on the 10th of May 2000. Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heen and Mike Tenay are on commentary. We get a recap of what happened on the previous Nitro. DDP getting beaten in the hospital and having uh, Kimberly pour the contents of the bedpan on him. Oh, that was... I'd almost forgotten how good that was until you mentioned yeah. it. Face-off between um, David Flair and Russo and Ric Flair. The Liz versus Daphne. Yeah, proper exceeded expectations, that. Yeah, it really did. Tank Abbott and uh, Rick Steiner attacking Scott Steiner. And uh, we get Goldberg's um, car crushing um, Tank Abbott and Rick um, Steiner's car and also saving Hogan. Uh, and then we get Vampiro coming up through the ring. So, you know, a lot of highlights from, from a really good show. Yeah, you definitely can't accuse it of, uh, of lacking... Lacking storylines, can you? And uh, lacking entertainment. No. Uh, so we're into the arena. The very first thing I see is a sign that I thought you'd love, saying I have to poop. Yeah, I'm time-travelling again on that WCW. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a Cruiserweight Championship match. It is Crowbar with Daphne, uh, and he's going to face the New Bloods, Chris Candito, with Tammy Stitch, who's wearing a flare-type yeah. robe. Yeah, she is. And uh, it'll shock you, mate, but the second week in a row, I've actually watched the whole Thunder, the whole episode. So I watched all of this Thunder. I really like this opening match. It feels like, we say this often for the Cruiserweights, this would not have looked out of place on like Dynamite today. Thought it was no. very, very good. Yeah, I've put in my notes, it was a really entertaining, hard-hitting match. And, and I think they even mentioned on commentary that it wasn't the typical type of Cruiserweight match. No, it wasn't. It was like the cruiserweights were obviously always there for, you know, the thrills and the high flying and, and the high risk. But this just showed that the cruiserweights had sort of evolved and could be could be a bit extra and a bit more. Yeah, I really liked it. Daphne um, gets involved. Um, she low blows Candito and um, does a Franken screamer from the top rope to him. I forgot. I'd, always, I'd forgotten that they called it the Franken screamer. I love that. Yeah, uh, Frankenstein by any other name. We get Daphne and Tammy fighting in the ring. Yeah, good stuff. Candito comes out with the win. Next, we're in Bischoff's office. Kimberly and the cat are with him, and he's telling Terry Funk to give up the hardcore championship. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's becoming a bit of an obsession, isn't it, for Mr. Bischoff, getting that last is. title? Yeah, Bischoff says, you know, we've all seen Beyond the Mat, so yet more promotion for the uh, VHS, run to the stars and buy it. It shouldn't be walking, let alone being champion, just give him the hardcore belt. And uh, Terry Funk says he'll have to cripple him. Tries to offer him money for giving up the hardcore uh, belt. How much do you want? And Terry Funk says, yeah, I don't want one thin dime from you. Bischoff then tells Cat to go get the heat. I, think I, like, I really like Funk in these segments because it, everything he says feels real. It, you know, you, we so often we've so often seen you know you know the whole is old he should retire line, but yeah. Funk, uh, Funk's defiance and the sort of fuck you attitude that feels like it's coming from a proper real place. It does. So the next scene uh, is just a, a short clip. We see Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner walking away from the car, and in the background we see the Goldberg monster truck looming. It's the, it's the sneakiest monster truck ever. It feels like it should have had that like that noise from the car to you know, Tom and Jerry when one of them would be sneaking it with like sort of a xylophone plink. Ding, 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 ding. 
<laughs> All through the night, we're going to get on location filming of uh, Russo, Crowbar, Flair and Daphne going through New York. And I liked these segments, but I wish they'd have shown them sort of in the weeks leading up to this event rather yeah. than putting them all in at once. And sometimes it feels because stuff's happening on the show and then there's these previously, things are maybe happening a little bit out of order. But I do love the idea whenever wrestling companies invest in padding out these kind of stories and going on location and filming stuff rather than just staying in the arena and not bothering. Absolutely. This this gave me um, Raven going shopping vibes, which, yes. we, you know, which, which we loved. And this is the same here because it, it's, it's showing you the relationship between Russo and Flair and then by extension Crowbar and Daphne. It, it's, it's expanding on Russo being a father figure and stuff like that, yeah. even though it's a bit questionable that they all went to uh, to watch porn together. But, you know, whatever. You're into what you're into. Well, and it's 25 cents porn as well, so you've got to wonder how good it was. Um, <laughs> um, I, love, I love that your big problem with this is the quality of the porn. Well, the other thing I liked about this is Russo says to Daphne, go play in traffic, and this is the best thing she's ever heard. And she runs into the road and starts dancing around and screaming, and all the cars are beeping at her. Yeah. And you know for a fact they never they never told anybody that they were going to do that. They just went and did it. Yeah, Russo's telling um, David Flair that there's naked women inside, and David Flair says he's never t- seen a naked woman before. And I, I know this, you know, that there's this whole objectifying angle to it, and it's a bit weird what they're doing. But actually, Ric Flair is this massive philanderer who, you know, mm. has promoted for at least 25 years at this point about womanizing and, you know, um, kissing all the girls and making them cry and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And you cannot believe for one second that Ric Flair wouldn't be the type of person who'd take his son under his wing and introduce him to that kind of environment with, you know, strippers and all this sort of stuff. But actually, you take a step back and think he's he's ignoring David to the extent that he probably hasn't done that. Yeah. The whole angle, the running lends itself to that. That he, he yeah. was never there. They never did out anything together. They were never doing anything remotely father and son, or even what you know, Ric Flair would consider father and son bonding. Yeah, it it really shows that Flair must have, you know, zero interest in his son if he's not even letting him tag along. Yeah, yeah, in in, in yeah, I've never considered that either, to be honest. But yeah, you're right. So I, I know I know it looks like a dodgy storyline, but I actually think they put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I can't really say much more. You've uh, you blown my mind a little bit with that. <laughs> well, a broken Rob's right well, twice I, I, a day. Well, I just thought it was how hard I've gone to watch porn. That's literally all it was, but when you delve into like deeper subtext, it, it's definitely there. Yeah, yeah. So the next match is Bischoff's stacked the deck against Terry Funk. Terry Funk's going to have to defend his hardcore championship against Harlem Heat 2000, which is Stevie Ray... Big T, the former Ahmed Johnson, with Cash and Jay Biggs in tow, although Jay Biggs is going to join commentary. Uh, we do get mentioned on commentary that uh, Stevie Ray accidentally gave the slapjack to Big T on the previous Nitro, so uh, there's a little bit of trouble there. Terry Funk comes out, and for reasons, he has a defrosted chicken on each hand. Yeah. Yeah, that was unique. 
I've never seen anybody beat somebody up with chickens. Oh, well, he does do it in the match against Dustin Rhodes at Uncensored, where Cody Rhodes makes his debut in the chicken suit. He comes out with a chicken on his hand. And oh, yeah, that, that, uh, that poultry excuse for a match. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's the Jake the Milkman Millman of uh, 2000, isn't he, Terry Funk, at this point? <laughs> Terry Rotisserie Funk. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the match starts with Har- with Terry Funk hitting Harlem Heat with chickens, as he's put in my notes. Yep, a sentence I never thought I'd write or say, but or hear. But there we are. There you go. Big T refuses to hit Funk with the bin lid, and then he turns on Harlem Heat. Yeah, I mean, there was also various combos of, of the Heat members holding Funk and just making him absolutely eat shit, you know, with the moves and you know they hit the big double spine buster and the big splash by Cash. So. They were really selling that Funk will just not die. You know, yeah. he won't stay down. He's going to keep kicking out. But, um, yeah, the uh, the turn there was, uh, at the end, was uh, was pretty well done. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And that chair shot that Funk gives Cash looks absolutely brutal. Meaty, I think is the word to describe it. It, was, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a, a clang or, you know, one of the big crashes that you hear. That was a, a thunk. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed it. Funk um, gets three count on cash and he's still the hardcore champion. Yeah, and I just put in my notes, that wasn't great, but I kind of loved it because everything Terry Funk does at this point is somehow endearing. Yeah, yeah, I put, it's always great to see Funk. Uh, I loved it. And something else that I loved, up next, Mike Tanay has a sit-down interview with Vampiro. Oh, this uh, was great. I mean, it really had the vibes of the J.R. Mick Foley sit-down interview or the J.R. China sit-down interview. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, Yeah, and, you know, it's obviously Russo's heavily involved with all three of those. Um, But, yeah, it does, you know, it definitely fleshes out the character and and gives more more in there. Mike Tanay saying he's surprised that Vampiro showed up in character and Vampiro saying, this is my life. Tells a story about how the tattoos and face paint are hiding himself because he was ashamed of, you know, his family growing up. And for him, it's his life, but it's an acting job for someone like Sting. Yeah, he said, you know, uh, he's been ridiculed the whole life, uh, his whole life for the way he looks. Yet Sting who paints his face and gets into character twice a week, his baby. And yeah, it was a real subtle, cool way to break kayfabe. And then, you know, saying that Sting gets all the praise and it drives him crazy. And the only thing, the only problem I had with this, because this interview was great, it was really good in isolation, but they'd built it up on commentary at least once to be this dark, disturbing experience for Tanae. And, you know, Tanae, to the point where Tanae's apologised that if he's not fully on his game. But it, it didn't go like... Mick Foley slash Mankind with Jim Ross, where he you know put the mandible claw on Ross and and you know choked him out or anything like that. I think the thing was though, it, it wasn't that it uh, attacked him. It's that Vampiro was telling the story about because he's got Sting's crow there in a cage that he's caught, and he's telling the story about Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off a dove, and, yeah. and how that made Ozzy Osbourne like this sort of cult figure. And sort of the exposure that he got from it and the notoriety and whatever. And 
obviously Sting, everything comes so easy to him. So Vampiro has to do something to get that notoriety, so he's going to bite the head off the crow. Yeah, and I get that, but it's still... I don't know, it just didn't come off as something that would be as traumatic as, as Tenet would make out, because nothing actually happened. Because Sting turns up and, and starts attacking Vampiro. So it's not like he had to sit there and watch it. And obviously we're not going to sit there and see it because it's WCW and standards and practice and all that. So I don't know. It was, it was a, it, uh, and I'm, I'm making a lot of what is a minor annoyance because, as I say, this regardless of how traumatic I think it would be to today, it was still really bloody good. Yeah, it, it was really good. And it, even, you know, Sting's calling Vampiro Ian and Vampiro's calling Sting Steve. The actor you know, Steve Borden. <laughs> I mean, we, we've covered Lucha Underground. Ah, I think Vampiro's a, a fantastic character, you know, all, all the way along. You know, really enjoyed his work, and I really enjoyed this segment. Yeah, like I said, that, that minor ground, that sort of mountain out of a molehill that I made there aside, fantastic. And then we get fucking Sean Stasiak. Yeah, the perfect one, Sean Stasiak versus Corporal Cajun in a Scotty Two hottie hat. Uh, it's a new name for Lash LaRue. I, I put in my notes that Cajun looked like Scotty Two hottie wearing Road Dogs uh, gear the day they invaded uh, WWF invaded Nitro. Yeah, all, all they did was leave the pants behind. Yeah, pretty much. Bruce Pritchard just tank. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest, I completely zoned out in this match. Completely zoned out. But did you notice uh, Graham from Good Cop, Bad Cop in the crowd? No. Well, was there a sign for the, the Kineta Neil Armstrong Museum of uh, Space Travel? No, but it could only be Graham because he had a sign there that said Matt W sucks. All right. Well, firm but fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can only assume that's... Uh, we've, had, uh, we've had Mags time travelling on this show before. We've had... Me and you, time travellers, also can only assume Graham gets in on the act at some point. I, I mean, I Matt always choose a Nitro rather than a Raw. <laughs> Matt always has to get the upper hand, so I'm fully expecting to see Matt try and travel in a banner the entire way across the hard cam. <laughs> Graham is a twat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, imagine, imagine if that happens. Can't wait for that. This is what they get up to when they've got a time machine. Uh, so Kurt Hennig comes out and enjoins commentary. Uh, Hennig saying that he was the one that got all the misfits reinstated and says that people don't realise how much sway he has within the new blood. Yeah, it's all a bit dubious with um, with uh, Kurt Hennig at the minute, isn't it? Yeah. He's denying his involvement with Stasiak, but he's saying he's got sway in the new blood and, and shit like that. It's a bit odd. Yeah. Hennig was high up in the powers that be, and the powers that be were was Russo. So, uh, and yeah. on the reboot episode, they they even draw that those themes out. So it kind of does make sense that it at least have the ear of the administration. Yeah, I suppose so. So in in the early match, Cajun's getting the upper hand, but uh, then um, Kurt Hennig drives him into the table, and um, Stasiak ends up winning with a perfect plex. Uh, the misfits in action are out, and stay, and Kurt Hennig leaves through the crowd. Yeah, that, it, it really wasn't a memorable match. Yeah. So next up, we're backstage. Uh, Vince Russo's talking to Liz. Um, is saying that you know the score at the moment's reading Liz three Russo nil, and he's really getting his ass kicked. Maybe he respects her a little bit more today than he did yesterday, but this is a fight that she just can't win. And uh, then he says that all you have to do is beat Ronda Singh. 
and you're um, out of your contract. People past building up Ronda Singh and also calling her a big bison. Although, I don't know if that's... I mean, she was, you know, compared to Liz, um, an, an intimidating figure. Yeah. I mean, I, I was really happy when he dropped uh, Ronda Singh's name. But he prefaced it by saying he's going to throw that big cow, Ronda Singh, at her, which was just fucking disrespectful, to be quite honest. And then he, he throws in the big bison line and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong, this is the monster ripper, Ronda Singh, and she's meant to be brutal and vicious and all the rest of it. But with uh, with 2022 eyes, those uh, those ways to describe her don't sit well, to be honest. They don't. And, and there the feels like there's ways of, you know, I mean, they always said about Vader, you know, the Mastodon Vader and stuff. It feels like there's ways that you, you could convey the same message in a more positive way. Yeah, there absolutely is. And you could even you could even because you know let's be fair, Russo Russo spits on tradition and doesn't give a shit who he offends and all the rest of it. He could have used Mastodon, yeah, you know something like that. He he, he could have just used it because Vader was neither here nor there at this point, was he? No, the major companies. So yeah, no, yeah. yeah, could have been done a lot better. Um, but they're really selling this whole abuse of power thing with Russo, and Liz is always going to be. I was going to be a baby face, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I liked it. I just felt a little bit of an opportunity missed with that one, really. So next, we're, we're back out uh, on the tour of New York. They're walking past a souvenir shop, and there's six foot tall Statue of Liberty, and Daphne screams because she's found the Statue of Liberty. Uh, <laughs> Crowbar says, "Every time I've seen the Statue of Liberty, it's surrounded by water." And Russo says. They move it around every day so everyone gets to see it. That was just that that was funny. Like just the the speed at which he spewed that bullshit and they they were just stood there and you know, Crowbar and Daphne both just makes sense. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean we've talked about Russo putting more interest into David Flair than uh, Rick Flair, and that isn't hard. But it also shows they're going on this tour of New York, it wouldn't really be that out of Russo's way to take them to see the big sites, but he's kind of doing it on minimum energy. So, yeah. you know, it, it's kind yeah. of he's doing he's doing enough to get their goodwill, but he's not giving them the platinum package. He's still been a bit of a shit out over it, <laughs> and still looks a lot better than Ric Flair. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. Although maybe there's something subliminal in that, but even if Flair had been a half-assed father, it'd have been all right. It just reminded me of in the Simpsons where Bart or Lisa makes some comment about. I think they say to him like your half-assed underparenting is a lot better than your half-assed overparenting, and Homer just stands there and just, oh, I was using my whole ass. <laughs> yeah, one for Steve over there. So next up, it's uh, Monster Ripper, Ronda Singh versus Miss Elizabeth. And it feels like they're mocking Ronda straight out of the gate with the uh, the music they played, although I'm not sure if it was a dub, because it was like kind of old old school sort of showgirl music. Yeah, it did feel like a dub. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the, the sort of theme they were going for, e- even on the original. But to us, cause I was thinking of this at the time, and I thought, oh, that's, that's a bit shit. But then I thought... I mean, you know, when she was Bertha Fay in WWE, WWF, they were basically booking her the same way. Um, yeah. I'm not saying two wrongs make a right, but to a certain extent, maybe that's a bit how the audience have come to see her. 
it speaks to it as well when you know when I did do the sort of deep dive into Rhonda Singh in uh, in the first um, first season of UTT that she hated doing you know she hated the time in WWF and WCW she was a lot happier in Japan and Puerto Rico where they just where they'd let her be a monster and let her be a wrestler all this shit around it just really ground her down and it's it's a sad thing because every time we see her she she throws herself into it and, and does her absolute damnedest. Yeah, oh, I, lo- I love that episode where she's sort of the string that's holding it all together and she's just going around it backstage and interacting with everyone and then getting involved with the Nitro girls dancing and mm. all shebang. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's a shame. The crowd's booing Rhonda Singh. Uh, Liz is out and she's still repping the Dudley boys, so she's got cut off Dudley pants uh, uh, at this point. Yeah, Russo said in the previous uh, thing with Liz that he's altered her outfit to be more New York. Which was apparently cutting the uh, cutting the trousers down to shorts and, and having Liz not wear a bra, so she was out there like uh, like wrestling's Jennifer Aniston and friends, where it was always a bit nippy. I know he definitely mentioned about the shorts. I think the uh, the bra might have been a, a Liz choice. No idea about that one. Ronda Singh crushes Liz in the corner, and we get a five count from Charles Robinson before he tells them they have to break. So they really have uh, loosened the rules in WCW. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that as well. I uh, I don't know whose uh, who's fuck up that was, but we can. Uh, I'm sure we can let it slide. Yeah, Luger's in. He stands between them. Uh, Ronda charges Luger. He ducks, and there's a kick from Liz to Ronda. And then Luger racks Ronda, which I thought was a, you know, a great visual because you were never expecting that you know Luger and Ronda would get involved. And... Mm. In a certain way, it's given him more respect that Luger's willing to do that. Yeah, and again, this is maybe more of a, a 2022 mindset. My only thing is, with this, I would have liked to have seen Ronda get at least a shot in on Luger. Just rock yeah. him, just rock him once. Show that she's got the power. Maybe rock him, then go after Liz and just do the boot and the rack and all that. But like I say, it's it's a bit of a that again, it's a bit of a nitpick because it was impressive to see Luger and Ronda actually interact that way. Yeah, Luger and Liz hug. Palumbo's out. He swings the baseball bat and hits Liz. Again, a shocking moment. Yeah. Again. Yeah, yeah, it, it was wow. Um, and then he attacks uh, Luger. David Flair and um, Daphne and Russo are about out talking about Ric Flair. Daphne's carrying Ric Flair's NWA championship and big gold belt. Love that. That was one of the first things I spotted, that Daphne had both the titles from the last episode. I love that. Vince Russo asks for a moment of silence for the departed Ric Flair, uh, and then he shouts, I broke Ric Flair. Russo being sort of up himself and celebrating is, it's so easy to get under your skin and done so, so well. Yeah. Uh, he said for 21 years he tortured David Flair and now he has a real father to look up to. Yeah, he um, does, not he? he says that it's you know time to turn the worm and all the rest of it. Yeah, David Flair says um, you were never there for me and lists all the um, sort of you know events in his childhood that Ric Flair's missed and he says and now I don't have time for you, Dad. Yeah, he likes to tell the crowd to shut up a lot as well. Yeah. He does. One of the things with David Flair's promo at this point, he does slip into reality because he's saying, and what do you think about the blonde that you saw me at the bar with and stuff? And and in kayfabe, he's in this relationship with Daphne, which is one of the great things in in WCW. But uh, clearly, you know, he's living the lifestyle of of a Flair and 
saying that he's doing it better than his dad. So yeah, I, th- I thought there was a little bit of a slip into reality there. Yeah, just a little bit. And, and I can't tell if that's a positive or a negative. Because as a positive, you know, that little bit of breaking the kayfabe is often, often very good. But this time it just felt that it muddied the waters. He's just been saying earlier how he's never seen a naked woman and he's you know, been in this relationship with Daphne for months or even maybe years at this point. So yeah, it was uh, it was a bit more um, it was a bit more Brooke Hogan getting engaged in real life than uh, <laughs> when she was supposed to be with Bully Ray than uh, you know than than helping things. Yeah, I, I didn't like it from the point of view that it, it killed the storyline. Well, you know, it, uh, I mean, it was still going to go along with this storyline with with Daphne, and 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 I thought that was brilliant, and that's definitely the creative direction to go. So I didn't like it from that point of view, but I liked it from the point of view that clearly there were issues between David and Rick mm. and that, that we got those issues brought up and clearly he did have an axe to grind against uh, his father or resentments there. And Vince Russo says there's another piece of garbage back there, your Uncle Arn. And then we get Arn Anderson out. We do. And it, it's always great to see Arn Anderson. And, you know, he's saying, is this point of Russo your, your answer? says, I didn't know my father, but he, Russo, is a groupie with power. I love that line. Yeah. <laughs> he said he can control the new blood, but he can't control me, Luger, Sting, your father. And he sort of tells all the story about, you know, what Ric Flair went through. And he mentions the time that Ric Flair had to be away from David and Ashley and Reed. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Mention a Charlotte there. Yeah, but again, reality bleeding in. Awesome stuff, and he tells, and it's sort of in a, in a rarity for the time as well. He starts talking about Rick having anxiety attacks because he's missing David growing up and stuff like. And he, even the sort of the mention of something like that at this time period was virtually unheard of. Yeah, I, I really liked that peeling back of kayfabe. I mean, as I say, that there's a line between kayfabe and reality in this story. We're hearing David's side of it, and I think David's side's valid. We're also hearing Rick's side of it, and I think there is some validity in Rick's side. I think there's also a lot of... Rick could have done a lot more for his family, but there's a bit where Arne Anderson says, you know, the hardest decisions uh, you had to make were which private school you were going to go to and what car you were going to get for your next birthday and that kind of thing. So it's like he hasn't had it as hard as some people sort of thing, but he still hasn't had that emotional investment. So you do feel that the both sides have a point and I think that's a really great place to be. Yeah, it's it's a lot more subtle and, and clever a storyline than I think a lot of people would give it credit for on the surface. Like I said, once you scratch the surface and peel back the layers of this and, and really pay attention to what both sides are saying, it, it's really bloody good and it's... Like you say, it's got the elements of realism, but the, the drama's off the scale. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. Russo saying that he heard Arn Anderson say that he had one good fight left in him, so it's going to be David versus Uncle Arn. Oh, I was I was so happy when I heard that, because I thought, bloody hell, we're getting an Arn Anderson match in 2000. Because we, you know, we saw in season one of UTT when he's saying, Arn was saying about the hardest thing to do when you... Oh, was it Zabisco was saying when you... Yeah, Zabisco. Yeah. yeah. When you, when you can't wrestle anymore, it's the hardest thing to do to be around it. Yeah. And here we've got Arn coming back. Yeah, and this is Arn Anderson's penultimate match ever that he's going to have later on in the show. 
Still, really? Yeah. And Anne Anderson says, I ain't the enforcer no more. It's, um, you sure as hell ain't your old man. Yeah, I love that. That was a burn, wasn't it? It was just like, I might be getting old, I might be injured, I, might, I probably shouldn't be wrestling anymore, but I can still beat the piss out of you, you little bastard. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. We get a brief scene of Bischoff, Kimberly and the cat talking to uh, Palumbo. Uh, and then we see Hogan pulling up in his Dodge Charger. Badass car, by the way. Yeah, he's got a new one since he wrecked one uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, ramming it into uh, the Millionaires Club's limo. Yeah. <laughs> Bischoff's telling Terry Funk, just leave the belt with him. I loved this. He says, I don't fit. I'm not goddamn new blood. I'm not a millionaire. You just don't know what to do with me because I don't fit in this whole scenario. Yeah. It was brilliant. Just, again, it feels so real. From Terry yeah. Funk, absolute gold. I, I know we're only partway through this show already. I wish any wrestling promotion felt like this today. You get glimmers of it, like the MJF thing. I think it's a really good work that they're doing at the moment with this whole. You know, and you're several weeks behind, with, you know, with this whole contract thing. And I've, I've been keeping up with that. Yeah, you know, but but telling, you know, saying once Tony Khan to fire him. I think that's that's. As close as we get, but but that is one moment of the show. This show's dripping in it. It really is, yeah. And it, it goes back to, I've said it so many times, on this show, on UTT, this Rus- this era of, of Nitro and almost everything else that Russo was ever involved in, the show itself felt like a world. It felt like a populated world where everybody had lives, everybody had stories, everybody had a reason for being there. Now, so much of modern wrestling, and this is across the board, not just AEW, not just WWE, but you've said it so many times as well, so have I, everything's so siloed. And now we have the, the, the Drew McIntyre segment, and now we have the Adam Cole bit. The one that gets me, that I always go back to, as you said a while back, Punk dropped, was it Punk dropped a line about Britt Baker yeah. in one of his promos. And Adam Cole was in the very next segment, cutting a promo. Or somebody, or maybe MGF dropped a line about Punk yeah. and Britt Baker. Yeah, MGF um, said that Punk was spending more time trying to get into Britt Baker's pants than he was to become world champion. Yeah, and Adam Cole was in the very next segment, and it wasn't addressed by anybody. And it was a perfect opportunity just to sow this, even just to sow the seeds of something in the future. Just acknowledge that it took place. But no, it's going out. I've got this, this, and this to say. This, this, and this to do. We'll ignore everything that I just heard about. See about one of the biggest acquisitions for AEW, allegedly trying to get in my wife's pants. Yeah, it makes no sense. They're leaving so much money on the table. Yeah, but I think I think it's because they just don't have the knowledge or the talent or the experience to be able to do that. Maybe for some companies, WWE, I'm looking at them, because they have done it before. They just don't have the inclination. I think part of it as well is this this writing style, that there's been a lot over the years to do down the Vince Russo era, and oh, he made himself champion and all this sort of stuff. And you know, there often is a lot of stuff that gets, you know, people blaming for the finger poke of doom, even though it was in a different company when that happened. But because he's got that sort of smear against him. Everything that he represents is seen as bad. Mm-hmm. And what the, what they're missing from that, even if you hate him and you hate his booking and all this sort of stuff, he could write really compelling television. And yeah. 
the throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If they say, right, we don't like X, Y, and Z, but that's that's no reason to disregard A, B, and C. Exactly. Do you know what? Do you know where the clo- the two promotions that are closest to this right now in this style, where stories where stories overlap, people overlap, they'll go off on one tangent, but then come back to the story, and, you know, and get back on track, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Impact and NWA, more so Impact at the minute, mm-hmm. as far as I've got, because in Impact stories will overlap. And they'll, but they'll have a scene where even if it's even if it's something as simple as somebody interrupting an interview because they're pissed off at a match result, say, yeah, they interrupt somebody's interview. That becomes an issue, an issue that gets dragged into the other issue that X person's got with Y. Yeah. So that leads to triple threat matches or a tag match or something like that. It gives a reason for the matches to happen. That's why, even though I'm behind on everything, I'll prioritise. Impact or NWA? I mean, for me, the, the promotion that came closest to this in recent years, and it's a long time ago now, it was Lucha Underground. Yes, I, I was meaning yeah. active promotions, but Lucha Underground, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it just really compelling television. Absolutely love it. At the next match, it's Terry Funk versus Chuck Palumbo, who's cosplaying as Lex Luger. The announcers are surprised that Funk's out. So it, it's a little bit of that Lucha Underground thing of the backstage conversations not being picked up in the main show sort of you know we're we're seeing that bischoff thing sort of out of the television so i I liked that palumbo attacks funk with a chair on the ramp Uh, i love this bit terry funk starts punching palumbo but he's holding on to his hair so he can't fall away and he keeps punching him just so simple but so good so effective. Why can't they do stuff like this today? I sort of I watch modern wrestling, and uh, you know, the, oh, just why? Just why can't they just look at? I mean, Terry Funk's a legend. Why, why wouldn't you want to copy him? Exactly. This is, but I can see. You say about modern wrestling. I could see somebody, one of the members of Blackpool Combat Club, pulling this out quite yeah, easily, the, and then, but, it, and then, and then, but then you'll have. 50% of people saying, oh, that was so cool. It looks so good. Then you'll have other, uh, another other half of the people going, well, he was doing with punch him in the face. It's like, but either way, it's got your eye and it's got you talking. Yeah. But it's also got psychology of, you know, Funk being that hard bastard. This is a man who, you know, is a lot older than everyone else. He has to use sort of dirty tricks and whatever to get the better of them. And he's yeah. using his knowledge and experience that he's built up since the 70s. It's amazing. It really is. And it, again, it's another one of those things because this happened in this era and wrestling fans, myself included, for a long time have been conditioned to think a certain way about WCW 2000. It just gets lost in the shuffle and there'll be a lot of people listening to this who will think we're talking shit, but go watch it. I love 2000 Terry Funk. I think that's a really good part of his career. He's a joy. He's an absolute joy. Yeah, so they end up fighting into the crowd and um, they go the fight backstage. They're throwing bins at each other, which uh, got an LOL in my notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the one of them was a trash. One of them was a trash can full of brooms. But what makes it better is it's not even by a It's not even the metal trash cans. It's the big. It's the huge, thick plastic ones. So you don't get a good like crunch out of it. You just get a donk. 
No, I, I thought that was great. Now, there was a really good spot here, and a, a really a lot of the time in, in wrestling, they'll, they'll do multiple finishes and whatever for those high spots. And to me, this evoked the drama of doing the finisher and the kick out at two without having to prostitute your finisher. You got this scene where Palumbo's holding Terry Funk up and sort of trying to throw him into a massive air conditioning fan. Yes. The peril there, just wow. Yeah, and I thought that was brilliant. Luger's in for the save. Luger throws Palumbo into a dumpster. And um, was it? I couldn't work out if it was a dumpster or if it was like an excavator or something with, you know, the big bucket at the front. It did look more like the bucket, didn't it? Because I, yeah. I, I saw it initially and wondered if it was like the back of a um, like a, a garbage truck. That, but it was too high and, and, and oddly angled, so either way, whatever it was, Plumbo gets chucked in it and Funk and gets the three. <laughs> it pins him in the excavator or whatever it was, and then Luger's trying to beat the location of Liz out of Plumbo. Yeah, but again, you know, stories intertwining. I've said so much that I loved about this section, but one thing at the end, because security always look like mugs when they're dealing with wrestlers, and they mace Luger. Yeah. And of course that's what they have to do. <laughs> yeah, because they're just nameless nameless chodes that are there to, you know, to allegedly protect people. They're just, the, you know, the wheat that's, or the chaff that's going to get separate from wheat, get side down until they've got the mace. It makes so much sense. Yeah, really made sense. Another thing that made sense is that obviously as Norman Smiley and Ralphus have lost their jobs, they'd be stood outside the arena with signs saying, we'll wrestle for food. Yeah. <laughs> in that one section alone, sorry, in that one match alone, you've had the whole Funk story, you've had Palumbo versus Luger, and the Russo and Liz story coming in, and now you've got Smiley and Ralphus. That's yeah. four or five storylines in one go. Brilliant. So next up, it's Billy Kidman with Tori Wilson and Eric Bischoff. And they've got the filthy animals in tow against Horace. And Horace's career is on the line. Oh, no. What will we do without Horace? Potentially without Horace. And if Hulk Hogan interferes, Horace is fired. Eric Bischoff cuts a promo saying if Hulk Hogan steps one foot in the ring before the bell rings, Horace is fired and uh, tells Horace to come out and dance with his future. See, uh, Bischoff was very select in his language. There. He said if Hogan sets one foot in the ring, what if Hogan walked on his hands into the ring? If he spin a rooney his way down. <laughs> a Hulk a rooney. Hulk a rooney. As he's, as, as he's yeah. sprayed Hulk Aroos out of, out of every orifice. I was going to say, because there was the Booker, Booker T um, beef rooney and we had Pasta Mania, so it's a good tie-in. Yeah, cross-promotion. Yeah. yeah. Kidman ends up clotheslining the ref, so Bischoff makes it a no-DQ match. Then there's a chance for a uh, count-out, but he changes the rules to falls count anywhere. And then Horace is on top in the match, so he calls for a handicap match, and the filthy animals attack Horace. Horace gets a, uh, ends up fighting back and getting a three count, but Bischoff changes the rules to a Texas death match. I feel like this match was a spiritual precursor to the uh, the Canadian rules match at New Blood Rising. It was. It. I enjoyed it, but it didn't have any of the panache that the Canadian rules match had. I mean, I, I think having Jacques Rougeau. Hamming it up 
with all the rules and the Canadian rule book uh, as well really helps. Do you remember when Eric Young, I mean, we spoke about Eric Young on a previous podcast and how many times he'd reinvented himself and I completely forgot that time that he had the gimmick where he had found the rules of wrestling and then get wins on a technicality because he had stuff in the rule book. Oh, right. I don't remember that at all. How brilliant that was. But yeah, so I think Jacques Rougeau and his Canadian wrestling rules book is definitely needed in wrestling today. Yeah, it can only improve things. Yeah, definitely. So then Bischoff um, cuts a promo saying that he's going to offer Horace a chance. uh, He can join the new blood and sort of get out of uh, the whole scenario. Uh, Horace spits in Bischoff's face. Uh, and everybody piles on him for a free count, which ends the match because Bischoff is changing the rules to whatever it is so that Kidman can win the match. Yeah, felt a bit um, bit overkill to have that many guys pinning Horace, but also it's they're, you know, they're cowardly shit heels, so why wouldn't they? And we all want Horace to just fuck off. That too. Yeah. <laughs> everybody was happy. I think there was a big pop of <laughs> Horace's career ended. I mean, I don't even want to see him out on the street with Norman and Ralphus. No, just just go work. Just just go away at home until your until your cousin opens a beach shop, and even then you're just going to be in the back doing inventory. Yeah, they've sent him out to scout out the tartan pin. Yeah, sent him to sent him for a long wait. Yeah, Hogan's out, he chases uh, Bischoff away, Nash comes out, and uh, the filthy animals run away and hide. Russo's out, and he's um, saying Kevin Nash alone at last, and uh, he runs down sort of, you know, Vinnie Vegas and Oz, and he asks, who put the cool in Big Daddy Cool? You, you or me. (laughs) Very good, very good. (laughs) And again, True. I mean, yeah. we, we watched some watched some of those shows. Two dudes with attitude was fucking awful. It still sends a shiver up my back whenever anybody says that. Yeah. It really does. You know, if he was left to the tender mercies of Bruce Pritchard and Jim Cornette's booking. Oh, dear me. There definitely wouldn't be uh, the Kevin Nash we know, we know today. We get the blood spot on Nash, although he's stood slightly off to the side so he doesn't get the full effect. Yeah, that... It was a funny one, that, because it was slightly off-centre. And I was fully expecting Russo to call an audible and sort of flip his lid. And then Nash to just be like, oh, great, you splashed me a little bit. Now I'm going to come and fuck you up. I think the thing that kind of redeemed them was that Nash was sufficiently covered in blood that it looked like it... Because at first, when I saw it from the other angle, I thought it completely missed him. Same. But, But enough of it got on him to be effective... But, uh, I mean, Jesus Christ, if the whole thing had hit him, he'd have been drenched. It would have been, been like the end of Carrie, definitely. <laughs> it, didn't help, it didn't help as well, that as it hit the mat, it looked purple. Maybe it's just my TV. This is one of the things, though. When you watch stuff, you know, on a HD TV these days, you spot a lot of stuff that you wouldn't have physically been able to see watching on the old CRT's low definition back in the day. Yeah, very true, um, very true. So maybe the uh, the difference in colour saturation and whatever uh, would have played a part. Yeah, I'm watching original Star Trek at the moment on Netflix and it's, you know, it's so clear and there's just bits in it that you would never have picked up previously. Yeah. And it's just unbelievable that it's such high quality. So then we get 
Russo and Bischoff running away from Hogan and Nash. Um, they get in the limo. Hogan and Nash start hitting him with bats. And then I loved, there was an internal shot of Russo and Bischoff sort of holding the heads as the baseball bats uh, are hitting the side of the limo and breaking the glass. Very, very good. Very cool. Really innovative. And uh, something I think um, we saw potentially around about the same time or maybe a little later in, uh, in in WWE, where they had like in limo shots and stuff like that. I can't honestly remember who did it first, but this the, the camera quality was lower than the actual, you know, the TV cameras that were the, that, that were using. So that really saw that this would just be like a a little hidden thing, you know, appropriate for the era in the limo. Just, yeah, again, another awesome little touch. Yeah. So next up, Arn Anderson's penultimate match versus David Flair, who's got Daphne with him. I quite like the commentary at the start of this, where Shivoni was relaying uh, relaying Arn's injuries. Um, yeah. Just to really sell how dangerous it was for Arn to be back in the ring. And then they actually, uh, Daphne still got the belts as well, which was cool. Then it all starts and you just realise that Arn's still a class above. He was wrestling circles around David, wasn't he? Oh, well, it's, it's funny. Quite literally, he had, you know, the hammerlocks and all of that as he's just spinning out of him and he's, you know, blocking hip tosses, taking David down with ease. But I think there was a, there was just, he dropped down and hit such a quick throw. You couldn't even call it a fireman's carry because it looked like he barely touched David, but he went flying. And I love sort of partway through the match, as you say, they're running down his injuries. And Tony Schiavone says about, you know, the scar on the back of his neck from, you know, the Sid incident and that he'd taken all the strength out of his left hand and he was effectively fighting one-handed. Yeah, and they, they, they went back to that later in the match when Arn was throwing punches or, you know, just trying to, you know, grabbing David's throat and forcing him back to the corner. He said, but he's using the left hand, so that won't be full force. Every, just all elements playing the part so well. Yeah. Crowbar's in and we get a spectacular double-A spine buster as Crowbar. Nobody does it better. Yeah, and then we get a low blow from Daphne. Nobody does. Very few people do that better. <laughs> and David Flair hits him over the head with a Statue of Liberty. Over, right over his neck. Crucially as well. It looks really good. It looked really effective. Crowbar throws the referee out of the ring. David has Arn Anderson in the figure four, and uh, Daphne and Crowbar are kicking him, and Arn Anderson's bleeding from the top of his head. And we get the call. I can't remember who from, but we get the call. This isn't a match. It's a mugging. Yeah. Uh, well, that sounds like a Madden line, doesn't it? Um, although it wasn't on commentary for this one. Uh, <laughs> probably Bobby Heenan. <laughs> Cage match has this as Arn Anderson winning by DQ. Although, oh no, I do beg your pardon, Cage Match has this as David Flair winning, but it's clearly an Arn Anderson DQ or a no contest. Yeah, absolutely, because the ref even gets chucked out of the ring. Yeah, yeah, so you've got to be careful with Cage Match. They stop Cage Matches right twice a day. Yeah. So we get another of the previously, and this really did feel, feel out of order with God, the Tower of New York. They're outside, what was it Tiffany's? Um, outside or is Jewelers. No, I think cause I thought the next one was um, where they were actually in the toy shop. Oh, I do beg your pardon, yeah. yeah Sorry. Right, um, so then, this yeah. Was, I believe this was um, FAO Schwartz, because around about this time, or just after, I was about 11 years old, and I was, I might have been a couple of years later, I can't remember, but I was, I was lucky enough to, uh, to go to that 
uh, that same toy shop when I was quite young. So we went to New York and I, I even now recognise little bits of it, although I do believe F.E.O. Schwartz is long gone, but it was the uh, the New York equivalent of like Hamleys or something like that. Yeah, I think, is this, was it Tom Hanks in Big? With the, like uh, with the piano on the floor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the very same, and I, I quite like this, you know. She's, um, sorry, uh, Russo's offering to buy Daphne and David a giant tinky winky from Teletubbies and the, the playing on the piano and David's fighting a kid with the, you know, the toy lightsabers, but the kid gets the better of him and he's threatens him with a real crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> there was great entertainment value in this little segment yeah around this sort of time my tutor at uni he he had sort of a gig as because in FHM they had all these various people who who were dads for certain things uh, and he was in there as science dad and his picture was him there with the double-edged lightsaber all right (laughs) oh brilliant Uh, so Dr Lloyd Evans yeah Sorry, I, 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 just, I just didn't know what to do with that information. <laughs> no, 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 it's just a double-edged light. So, yeah, I'm not a massive Star Wars fan, so, you know, it, it's sort of, uh, that, that's a reference I have. Although, uh, yeah. So we're talking about Star Wars in America. The next time I go to America, I have to go to Orlando, and I need to go to Galaxy's Edge. Because you can get, you, I'm a massive Star Wars fan, and you can pay money. You know, you talk about, obviously, everybody's in character. But if you've paid your money, you get taken you get plucked off, plucked off the street, so to speak, and taken to make your own lightsaber, as if it's like an underground, you know, an underground rebel Jedi thing. And also, they've got a they've got a ride that's like piloting the Millennium Falcon. So, I need to do that. So the next segment's the Tank Abbott segment. So we'll, we'll leave that for later. Then we get uh, back on the tour of New York. Uh, I think they're outside Tiffany's now because Daphne's looking at the jewelry in yes. the window. David Flair uh, whispers into Russo's ear that he wants to marry Daphne, and Russo's saying, yeah, it's up to you. Um, David Flair gets down on his one knee and proposes. Daphne screams and hugs him. Yeah, can you imagine, like, watching that? Obviously knowing that a TV show's been filmed because you can see the cameraman. But imagine just walking around the street in the streets of New York and hearing Daphne scream like that. (laughs) Yeah. You'd shit a brick. (laughs) As I say, I really loved these segments. I just wish that... Imagine if they'd been spread out over a couple of weeks or whatever, or, you know... Yeah, it's like it's, with this segment and one we've covered previously with um, with uh, Russo and, and David and Daphne turning up at Rick's house. Yeah. It, it does feel like it could have been, you know, stretched stretched a wee bit further. Yeah. But, like, and like, but we saw so much of Russo and David and Daphne on the show itself... It just, like you say, it just it, it felt almost like they were teleporting. Yeah, yeah, it did. Although we did get a classic Bobby Heenan line when uh, Daphne accepted the uh, proposal. Bobby Heenan says, "Well, that's another good friendship ruined." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's the king, isn't he? Yeah. It's just so good. Yeah. So next up is an ambulance match: uh, Mike Awesome versus Sting. I've got, to, I've got to interject just quickly as well. It's an ambulance match with about four minutes left on the show. You know, I really worried when I saw four minutes in an ambulance match on the show. Same. But, but I should have trusted. I should have trusted 2000 WCW to deliver. Because <laughs> yeah, it actually wasn't half bad. No. I mean, this is it. Everyone shits on 
2000 WCW. But where else could a four-minute ambulance match with ring entrances still work? And the thing is, the more I thought about it, like, I, I, I can't recall ever recall a good ambulance match. They're always pissing about. They take too long. It's you know it's going to go 15, 20, 25 minutes, and it's just going to be long, drawn-out bullshit. It works so much better as a few-minute smash and grab, especially the way they do this one. Yeah. No, I thought it was great. At the start of the match, uh, Mike Awesome um, picks up a table and Sting drop kicks hit through the table onto Mike Awesome. So he's sort of holding it up and Awesome falls down with the table on top of him. Then we get Sting back body dropping Awesome through the table, which looked absolutely awesome. Was that uh, when it was set up um, on the on the second rope and out on the ramp? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, that looked so cool because it was... He had that bit of extra bounce from the ropes, and it just made it look even even worse, you know, even grimmer. Yeah, they, they fight the way up to the ambulance, uh, and then they fight on top of the ambulance. Awesome tries for a couple of awesome bombs, and, and Sting sort of keeps wriggling out. There's one time when he hasn't sort of picked him up that well, and there's one time he slides down the back. Uh, I thought that was really, really well done, sort of avoiding mm-hmm. uh, the big finish. We get a scorpion death drop from Sting on top of the ambulance. Uh, and Sting opens the ambulance doors, but Vampiro's inside and uh, mists him and then throws uh, Sting into the ambulance. Awesome's still on top of the ambulance as it drives off. And as, a, as a, someone watching on TV, I absolutely loved it. But you could hear, I could hear fans booing it. Yeah, no, well, I get, I get that. I guess this we said before it's a great television show. Maybe it's more focused on the TV audience at home, uh, and maybe they were expecting more. But you know, I put in my notes, wow, another hot end to a show. I, I oh, mean, yeah. literally, sort of go home, raw to uh, the pay per view, the to Helen Cell. I think they've done a half decent WWE job for the build to Hell in a Cell for WWE, but they literally just had the faces in the ring celebrating. You know, it's like that, that's that's supposed to be your end game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's supposed to be what you get there. You know, the, this show wasn't a go home or anything. It was just a really hot ending. Yeah, it's and thing. My note says that this was really good story wise, but it just felt a bit rushed. But this left me wanting more. Where, as I said before. So many ambulance matches or stretcher matches, anything like that, just fe- leave me feeling, thank fuck it's over. Yeah. So in that respect, it exceeded expectations massively. Yeah. So Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo are going to log into LinkedIn and they're going to look at the characteristics that Brian Clark and Brian Adams might have that make them a suitable opponent for Tank Abbott. They're both fucking massive. Yeah. That, that is a good, uh, <laughs> good description. <laughs> Brian Clark in 1989 debuted in the AWA as the Night Stalker and had Ox Baker as a manager early on in his career. Oh, fair enough. I never knew that, and uh, we might see uh, Ox Baker in the uh, in the future on this on uh, on booking the territory. Yeah, come on down, Ox. The price is right. <laughs> um, uh, between 91 and uh, 1990 and 91, um, he joins WCW. He faces Sid at the Class of Champions 13 but is um, soon sidelined. He ends up missing most of 1990 and uh, then returns in October as uh, the masked ghoul. That is a terrible name. Well, things go from bad to worse because he has three matches in Herb Abraham's UWF in 92. 
Oh dear. From from whatever that was a bit shit show that place. Yeah, that, that that was a thing that happened. Between 92 and 93, is in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, uh, and he becomes the Beat the Champ TV champion, which is an album that happened. And 93 to 95 is in WWF as Adam Bomb, and he's managed by Johnny Polo. Yeah, that was um, Adam Bomb was, was quite a bit apt for a few months. Yeah, although uh, at WrestleMania 10, he lost to Earthquake in, in 35 seconds. Yeah, details. Uh, Max <laughs> 96 is on the Indies and he's working in NWA Hammerlock. And uh, we may cover oh, wow. um, some NWA Hammerlock uh, in future episodes that ironically also will cover some you know, someone, Tank Abbott's next match after this. So uh, a lot of NWA Hammerlock links. 97 to 2001 is in WCW. Uh, 97 is... Wrath, um, and he's part of the Blood Runs Cold characters so that are based on Mortal Kombat, which include Mortis, Glacier, and Ernest Miller, before he... I, I loved Wrath and Mortis. <laughs> I thought, no, seriously, I, what, what, I watched back a, a fair bit of this era, I loved Wrath and Mortis, and I loved Glacier, because I know for a fact, as a kid, about I'd have been about eight years old at that point, nine years old, I, I, it would have driven me insane watching that. I think it's really good. If you're going to sell a wrestling figure, I've always said that, you know, you'd, you know kids are more likely buy a, a Mortis figure than a Kevin Sullivan figure. Well, definitely, because the, the Wrath of the Mortis figures would be actual, like, size of normal action figures, whereas Kevin Sullivan would be half the size. <laughs> Kevin Sullivan's life-size, the figure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we shouldn't make fun of Kevin Sullivan's height. It's really punching down. No. Oh, but I can't wait to review him on Baywatch. People stand in the darkness, afraid to step into the light. That is going to be a laugh. We need to do that soon. In April 99, he gets um, an ACL injury in a match against Jerry Flynn, uh, and he's out for an entire year, returning in April 2000 to form Chronic with uh, Brian Adams. That's twice he's had full years out then. Yeah, yeah. 1st of January 2000, he signs a two-year deal for $175,000 a year. So at this point, you can get 3.17 Brian Clarks for a Tank Abbott. Or, tank Abbott. or 0. 0.27 Tank Abbott for Brian Clark. But yeah, take the Tank Abbott. Yeah, you didn't even need to tell me the ratio on that one. No. So Brian Adams was born in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Uh, his parents had actually emigrated from Plymouth. Uh, is, is, oh, really? Yeah, his father served at Sandhurst, uh, officer in the British Army, but then went over to the Canadian Army when they'd moved across, and he was involved in United Nations peacekeeping as uh, a Canadian foreign uh, diplomat, Good which involved um, Brian uh, Adams growing up in places like Lisbon and Vienna and Tel Aviv. At the age of 15, Brian Adams joins uh, a band. Uh, and at the age of 20, he uh, releases an album. Fuck's sake. <laughs> I didn't know how far I was going to get with this. <laughs> you cock. did think about starting it with him. In 1969, he bought his first real six-string. <laughs> I would have twigged then, to be honest. <laughs> I got further in that than I thought I would. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about these people's lives. It, it could be, you know, that could have been true. Yeah. Um, uh, so just uh, going back to Brian Clark, so I wasn't sure which one it was. In February 2020, so very recently, where Brian Clark 
was uh, arrested in Arizona over five felony charges of a drug possession conspiracy, illegal control of ent- enterprise, and uh, and selling narcotics. Oh, God. As to be said, he's pleaded not guilty to all, and on June 18, 2021, all charges were dismissed by prosecution motion, so the entire case was thrown out, but he's, uh, he's definitely had... Uh, Definitely had a time of it recently. Wow, wow. That, that's not as good as uh, Brian Adams having uh, 18 straight weeks at number one in the UK with everything I do, I do it for you. Fuck's sake. <laughs> Although it, it has to be said that I wasn't sure whether it was Brian Clark or Brian Adams. Uh, I have just found out that Brian Adams uh, has actually been dead for quite some time at this point. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the reason I did it uh, in the first season of UTT, uh, you said you could never tell the difference between Brian Clark and Brian Adams. And I said Brian Clark was Adam Bomb, and Brian Adams sang When You're Gone with Mel C. And you went, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that now. I think I was just, I, I was either really drunk or I was just blagging it off and <laughs> going with it. It, yeah. it was probably the former. Yeah. So Brian Adams, the wrestler, graduated from <laughs> high school and uh, he joined the US Air Force where he uh, began boxing. And um, when he was stationed in Japan, he was exposed to wrestling and, and actually started training with Anthony Inoki. Oh, wow. So, so it's almost as crazy as uh, if he'd uh, been living in Tel Aviv and uh, Vienna, to be honest. <laughs> well, the thing is, you never, you never know who's going who's gonna to have been yeah. an army brat, do you? Yeah. So in 1986, he debuts for New Japan, but has to leave in 87 when his visa expires. He begins working in Portland, Oregon's Pacific Northwest Wrestling, PNW, as the American Ninja. Portland was always a quite sought-after territory, wasn't it, to work for, because it was one of the better-paid ones. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, MJF's been cutting all these promos about Piper in Portland, hasn't he? Maybe that's why it's fresh in my mind, but I certainly remember it being... uh... Been told that way on the in the early days of uh, I think it was Steve Austin's podcast. Yeah, in nineteen eighty eight he returned to New Japan as the Midnight Soldier, and then in eighty eight eighty nine he's working in CWA and All Japan, and he has one match each for WCW and WWF. Fair enough, doing the rounds. The rest of eighty nine and ninety um, back at um, PNW. Nineteen ninety one um, he's introduced in the WWF as the third member of Demolition. And uh, is a champion under the Freebirds rule there. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the slightly less favourably looked at one, isn't he? In, uh, yeah. so I don't really remember that era of demolition. Yeah, he's definitely the uh, less. You know, even Repo Man's uh, a better member of demolition than him. He, he returns again for a third run in uh, PNW, uh, and then in '92 to '95 is in the WWF. He starts out as Hawaiian Crush. Uh, in 93, he has a heel turn. He's managed by Mr. Fuji, and he has a tribal Hawaiian crush gimmick. In 95, he's actually sent to jail for purchasing steroids <laughs> and possession of a legal handgun, and WWF publicly announced the firing on WWF Mania the 25th of March, 95. See, uh, I, I, I don't know if this is real or not, so for all I know, you could be just setting up for preserve for convict crush or whatever it was. Well, I, I mean, this is life imitating arcs. This is real. And then they bring him back in 96 after his real-life stint in prison as Biker Crush, who's been a convict, and he has his periods in the Nation of Domination and the Disciples of Apocalypse. In 98, he signs with WCW, initially debuting as a member of the NWO attacking Bret Hart. 
Uh, and then in 99, he briefly gets repackaged on two appearances as the Kiss Demon. Of course, I've nearly forgotten. And yeah. I, I'm actually quite annoyed he let such a great gimmick go by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. The, the other Brian Adams wouldn't have done that. He'd, he'd have given anything to be in the same sphere as Kiss. He would. Uh, uh, in late 99, he goes back to his real name, and in 2000, he joins Chronic. It's got the same deal just uh, a couple of weeks later on the 19th of January 2000, two-year deal for $175,000 a year. So 3.1 Brian Adams for a tank Abbott at this point. And I'll give you 10 guesses which one I'd take. I'll give you another offer. At this point, you could have 1.86 Chronics for a tank Abbott. I'm still taking the tank Abbott. Yeah, it's not even close, is it, with Chronic? Yeah. I know, I mean, for all of... Uh... Yeah, for all of Brian Adams' uh, longevity and the fact that he's playing the Scarborough Open Air Theatre in July. Uh. So in, in this segment, Rick Steiner comes out. We get highlights of Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott beating up Scott Steiner. And um, then we get Goldberg's monster truck destroying uh, Rick Steiner and Tank's car. Uh, Rick Steiner says there's two things that mean nothing in the wrestling world anymore. Who's next and Goldberg. Love that opening line, setting the stall out nice and early. Carrying on the uh, the tank versus Goldberg thing and throwing his hat on uh, on you know onto Tank's side, yeah, it's good and he carries that on, doesn't he? He's saying you know the the man he's about to bring out isn't flashy, isn't pretty, but he'll knock you out. <laughs> yeah, which sums Tank up perfectly. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And he says the soon-to-be world heavyweight champion Tank Abbott, and uh, we're going to get another Tankberg entrance. We've got Doug Dillinger knocking on the door and R and B security. Sort of lying in the sides. Max Hanea says, not this bogus entrance again. This is the better one, though. Well, Tank's hitting his head uh, on where he's walking backstage, but he's lucky he didn't knock himself out. It's Tank Abbott that's hitting his head. Yeah, but the one thing that can stand up to Tank Abbott is Tank Abbott. In all fairness. Tony Schiavone says, uh, let's not forget Tank Abbott uh, was one of the men in the plot against DDP with um, David Arquette. So that just confirms that you know, the fix was in. Um, yeah. Yeah, and he says he's uh, firmly entrenched in the camp of Russo and Bischoff. And then Tank Abbott comes out and he's got two sparklers. The sparklers. I love the sparklers. That's where I was getting confused in the uh, in the last episode between the uh, the pyro and the sparklers, because I couldn't remember which had happened on which one. But the fact he went from full pyro and, and you know, smoke snorting to the sparklers was just, oh, chef's kiss. Yeah, and Tank Abbott's laughing at the crowd and Bobby Heenan's laughing with him. Yeah, because Bobby Heenan was a Tank guy. Yeah, uh, and Bobby Heenan's also saying that he want, uh, that Tank Abbott wants to fight Goldberg. Rick Stein says, uh, last night, Scotty, what I tried to do was um, keep you from getting fired. I'm sick of um, keeping your ass out of trouble. But then he sort of changed tack and says, what I did last night, you had it coming. About a year ago, you joined the NWO and turned on me. I, I told you that night. I'd never forget it. Now we're even. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, it sounds a little garbled when you put it like that. But to me, it's this was more like a, an accumulation of things. You know, the fact he's had to look out for Scott the whole lives. And he's been doing that. And that's worn him down. And then, you know, the final sort of betrayal of, of Scott joining the NWO was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and he's been biding his time ever since. Yeah. Just uh, didn't quite put it across the way he meant to, I don't think. Tank Abbott says, uh, Goldberg, you think you can run over my car? Well, I'm going to run over your ass. With a monster truck or just punching him? 
I mean, they've always said tanks rolling to the ring, haven't they? Um, <laughs> calls Goldberg garbage and asks when he's going to come out of his hiding place and we get the Goldberg chants from the crowd. And uh, he says he's going to give Goldberg a whooping, just like... Just like his mum did when he was yeah, a young like, Yeah, just like your mum did when you were young and... And then Chronic's music hits for reasons, but Tank shouts, bring it on. Uh, you, want, you want to shoot, bring it on. Um, any of you boys in the back? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the two big bastards come out and one of the Brian says, you know, they're really impressed with the shooting backgrounds, but we can't stomach, uh, what we can't stomach any longer is you two shooting your mouths off, which was uh, a fairly decent line. wasn't awful. <laughs> It was Brian Adams that was, because uh, Brian, Brian Clark isn't so good with uh, the talkings. Did he know do the speaky good? No. Rick Steiner says, uh, you want some, come get some. So John Cena's uh, clearly stolen that. John Cena has Rick Steiner a lot of royalties. Mm, but then John Cena never says, you don't like me, bite me. Well, anything else would be a complete rip-off, wouldn't it? So he just took the first bit. Yeah, but the crowd chant along uh, with Steiner as he says it. Brian Adams says, uh, what about we come up there and uh, shoot our boots straight up your asses? Fair enough. Why not? Let's have a fight. Yeah, Bobby Heenan says, oh, this is going to be good. There's no bell and no ref. Yeah, so again. It's not even a match. <laughs> not even a match. <laughs> yeah. It was very much generic brawling, wasn't it, for a lot of it? Yeah, it was. It was. We get the franchise and Buff running in, attacking Chronic. And actually... Buff gets uh, Brian Clark off Tank, and then Tank punches Buff over his back. Yeah, I was just about to say <laughs> that. Yeah, he just Tank absolutely twats him, doesn't he? And Buff falls uh, over the second rope out of the ring. Good sell. I like it. You've got like Rick Steiner hitting an axe handle off the um, off the was it off the top or was it to the floor? I can't remember. Yeah, it was off the apron. Yeah. Yeah. Tank throwing Brian Adams into the post. It's just absolute chaos. The ring mats were really wet, weren't they? I, think, I don't know if this was from the blood spot with Kevin Nash earlier, but everyone seemed to be slipping and sliding on the ring mats outside. It, it was very much like in the in, in football when they when they've watered the pitch at halftime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tony Giovanni says, "Is this a shoot fight in WCW? Just uh, come as you are, no ref, just fisticuffs." Fine, but you know we we got to pad out Tank's winning record a bit more. When's it going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Douglas and Bagwell have stolen the belts yet again. And then Tank throws uh, Brian Clark back in the ring. Tank is trying to sort of uh, punch him as he's getting back into the ring, but security run down. Uh, they're on the ramp and the crowd is on the feet and we realise that they're trying to stop Scott Steiner from getting into the ring. And it was like, there's a lot of these pull-aparts or attempted sort of block, you know, blocking the entranceway that look really put on and shit. This very much felt like they were struggling to hold Steiner back. This felt real. And given the size of Steiner and his mentality, it's not impossible to think that he would actually be there trying to force his way through 15, 20 dudes. <laughs> Just trying to hard bastard his way through. But I uh, I really like this bit. It looked even more effective with the ramp being this, you know, level with the ring apron, I thought. Because it's not something I'm always completely sold on. But in this instance, when you see the depth of people that he's trying to force his way through, and you can see you know, the, the many, many, many veins bulging in his arms, and he's, as he's trying to just rhino his way through them all. It's, uh, yeah, it, again, another little thing that had a big impact. 
Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Tony Schiavone is saying um, Tank Abbott's nowhere to be found. Scott uh, Rick Steiner's trying to get away from here. Scott Steiner and Chronica fighting R&B security in the ring. Uh, the questioning where have Tank and Rick Steiner gone to? Bobby Heenan says higher ground if they're smart. And, and he says um, it's really interesting because Tank Abbott doesn't run away from anyone and neither does Steiner. Tank's done his fighting, so he's fucked off to the pay window. And then we see Tank and Rick at the top of the stage laughing and pointing. Yeah, I quite like this, because he's just stood there, he's like, I've had a little bit of a scrap, I'm feeling good, and they're, you know, they just stood there laughing, but one thing that, because I heard, I heard the noise before I registered what was happening on the big screen behind Rick and Tank, I thought that they were, the camera, uh, you know, director was missing, sort of good in-ring action, and that was when I realised I could see the suplex behind Tank and Rick on the Tron, so it was actually pretty good camera work in the end. I just wasn't paying attention. Yeah, I, I liked that. And I liked that Rick was just sat on the Nitro Vision. I, I thought that was enjoyable. We then get on the big screen, the Goldberg monster truck running over the car again. And Tony Chavon is shouting, that's their car. And Bobby Heenan's questioning, did you see who was driving the Goldberg monster truck? But Tank and Rick don't notice that the car's being run over. And I, I would have liked them to have sort of picked that up. Turned around, had a bit of a freak out, run off yeah. to go sort the car out. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 all it would have taken to just bump that up a notch. Yeah, no, de- definitely. So, again, I don't think this was an actual match. Cage match have it as a match, and they have it as a, a DQ win for Chronic, but I don't think it actually transpired to be a match. Nah, there was no bell. It's not a match, It was just a, it was just a brawl. And, uh, you know, Tank and Rick left. They were minus a car, but they were still standing. And, you know, Chronic were left at the mercy of R&B security, minus the tag belts. So I'd say overall, it's uh, Tank at least breaks even. It kind of was what it was. We had to settle for good rather than very good. Yeah, we did. We did. But we've had some hashtag tank facts um, sent into the show. Uh, it's been a little while since we've had those from the listeners, so very, very much appreciate those. If you want to send those in, we'll, we'll shout them out on the show. So Danny at Scottish Juggalo said, Tank Abbott never visits the dentist because his teeth are unbreakable. Tank, Abbott, tank Abbott's enemies never visit the dentist because they have no teeth. <laughs> also very true. <laughs> Sam Rogers, Mr. Rogers, 88, who we need to go out drinking with again very soon. He sent in a few. He said, uh, Tank Abbott makes Happy Meals cry. <laughs> I like that one. He says, uh, Tank Abbott once punched a horse in the chin. His descendants are now known as giraffes. That really tickled me as well. Because until, until I read the second line, I was thinking, I didn't realise Tank Abbott was a Leeds fan. Well, it was Leeds where that police horse got punched, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, a dirt, dirty leads. He said, the only way that you can persuade me to go to Clash at the Castle is if Tank Abbott was on the card. Well, the thing is, they can't announce Tank Abbott because if they do that, the demand for tickets will be so high that they'll crash every single ticket website ever. Yeah, uh, and his ideal booking for that event would be Taft Tank entering the ring with a bunch of leaks and a Welsh male voice choir singing Green Green Grass of Home as his entrance theme. With Orig Williams as his manager. Yeah, that, that would be a, a quality Taft tag, taff tank fact if that happened. It would. Yeah, don't try and say that after 9.5% uh, <laughs> uh, 
Scott Madsen at um, Scott Madsen 73 said it's believed that Tank has been around since the beginning of time itself. Archaeologists have uncovered several prehistoric crave drawings closely resembling what looks like uh, Tank Abbott standing over wild animals after knocking them out. Tank Abbott does transcend time and space. It does indeed. So um, the Brain Buster Boys at uh, Brain Buster Boys said, um, said wrong answers only. What is on the legal pad? And there's a picture of Jack Tony with a legal pad. And Danny had said uh, a contract to sign Tank Abbott to a lifetime deal in 1993. Unfortunately for WWF, Tank Abbott refused. And um, this unpardonable transgression in Jack Tony's failure to sign Tank Abbott, Vince McMahon um, refused to attend Jack Tony's funeral. Oh, Jesus. Dan- Danny using the... Uh... Using the death heat. <laughs> wow, wow, that's uh, that, that's controversial. So we've had plenty of uh, tank facts. So really enjoyed those. Yeah, I've got to be honest. That if I had to pick a winner, it'd be uh, Young Master Rogers's one about the giraffes. Yeah, because that's evolution. Evolution, yeah. isn't, evolution isn't a mystery. Tank Abbott punches it into shape. Yeah. <laughs> and we know what the next tank fact's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find you, Dan? You can find me on Twitter at DanGriffin21, usually tweeting about wrestling that's a minimum six weeks out of date or movies that are 25 years out of date. Uh, you can also hear me on the Doctor Who pod with Cy Powell that I uh, forgot to mention previously is now uh, distributed by both Radio Techers and Visionaries Global Media. Season one is uh, myself and Cy looking at uh, episodes of Classic Who and New Who. Uh, alternately, seeing what lands with the Classic Who for me as a New Who fan and seeing what lands with the new Who for size, a more classic Who fan. By the time you hear this season two, we'll be well underway. Uh, we'll, we'll basically be doing the same thing, but we'll be sprinkling some guests in, uh, in and around the place as well. Superb. You can find me at UTT Rob. It's really more about the mutuals and it's about the followers. I'm absolutely more than happy to follow back. You can follow this show at UTT Tank and get those quality hashtag tank facts. You can follow the main show at UTT Podcast. Season one, we looked at the highest and lowest TV rated episodes for each creative period of the Monday Night Wars. Season two, we looked at looking at the first and lasts of wrestling. It's really worth checking out on the same feed. You can hear the One Man's Meat podcast where Danny at Scottish Juggalo and the real Chris Bellis are looking at forgotten storylines. Wrestlers that might not get that much love, that kind of thing. Uh, again, really worth checking out. So... The next um, time we're coming back on Unbooking the Tank Atari, we're going to hop over to WCW Worldwide. It's going to be Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner versus Ashley Hudson and Corey Williams. I don't know who either of those people are. No, well, you'll find out. And I look forward to it. I've got a feeling they're going to be two dudes who get punched so hard in the face that they'll be never seen again. Quite possibly, quite possibly, although one of them might do a deal. In fact, both of them are going to do a deal with an ITV monkey. (laughs) Is that a reference to Brian Adams again, or am I just missing something completely? No, they're both going to turn up in NWA Hammerlock's Transatlantic Wrestling um, that was a very shortly lived series on ITV Digital that only people who had ITV Digital could watch. Oh, how didn't I know that, really? You know, of course, it's so obvious when you put it like that. <laughs> and who knows, like you said, maybe we'll, re- maybe we'll visit uh, NWA Hammerlock on UTT. Maybe we will. Thank you for listening. There's two things that mean nothing to the wrestling world anymore. That's who's next and Goldberg.
I don't think so. You see Goldberg? Didn't we see the his, man I'm about to bring out? His monster he truck earlier. He ain't flashy. We did. He ain't pretty, but he will knock you out. You see Goldberg? You're not 100% anymore. You have a weakness. So whenever you decide to step in that ring, this man will knock you out. So let me bring him out, the soon-to-be world heavyweight champion, Tank Abbott. Totally avoiding the subject of what he did Monday on Nitro, and now, oh, not this bogus entrance again. The Goldberg music. What a slap in the face to Bill Goldberg. Mimicking Goldberg, Tank Abbott. Now look at this, R&B security. Let's not forget that Tank Abbott was one of the men that was in on the con where Diamond Dallas Page suffered at the hands of David Arquette this past weekend. The whole elaborate plan from Eric Bischoff. And now that the RB security walks into the ring, obviously a man firmly entrenched in the camp of Russo and Bischoff. And as the Goldberg faithful stand up, knowing that lurking outside is that monster truck. Now, what does that mean?